You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 71, The Spoiled Child of Victory. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I'll remind you that you can listen to this and all future episodes ad-free by pledging at least $2 a month on Patreon.com. Anyway. Last episode, we examined the Concordat the settlement between the Revolution and the Vatican, engineered by Napoleon. In the short term, the deal was a triumph for Bonaparte, a political victory on the scale of his most dramatic battlefield victories. However, as we discussed, upon close examination, with the benefit of hindsight, there were some serious flaws to the agreement. Napoleon's approach to religion was not quite as conciliatory as he proclaimed. The Concordat ended open conflict between the Church and the French government, but true reconciliation between average Catholics and the secular state remained elusive. The gulf was so great that even a leader of Napoleon's stature couldn't do much more than paper it over. This conflict would rear its head again and become a problem for successive generations of French men and women. But in 1802, that was still quite distant. A decade of civil conflict was over, and most people were in the mood to celebrate. The Concordat was signed in the summer of 1801, but kept secret at first so Napoleon could properly prepare the country and set the political stage to his liking. The deal wasn't introduced to the legislature for ratification until April 8, 1802, nearly nine months later. This was clearly meant to coincide with what would be the first official state-sponsored Catholic religious observance in over a decade. Easter Sunday, 1802, fell on the 18th of April just ten days after the Concordat was submitted to the legislature. France would welcome the Catholic Church back to the country on the holiest day of the Christian calendar, a festival of rebirth and renewal. It was perfect optics. As always, Napoleon had staged managed events for maximum symbolic impact. The legislature dutifully rushed to ratify the agreement and Napoleon prepared for the grand unveiling of his greatest domestic achievement. 
If you think back to our discussion of the Treaty of Amiens, which ended the war between Britain and France, you might recall that it was also signed around this time, actually only a few weeks earlier, March 25, 1802. Napoleon claimed this Easter celebration was just another facet of the return to normalcy which his regime represented. But in practice, with the timing of the treaty and the Concordat, Easter felt more like an official state celebration of Bonaparte's accomplishments, rather than an act of religious devotion in honor of the resurrection of Jesus. The festivities began with a military parade, in which the First Consul reviewed several newly raised regiments and officially presented them with their battle standards. Easter is a celebration of renewal, and in France in 1802, it was also a celebration of peace and political harmony. And yet, not only was Napoleon still raising new regiments, he was making them a centerpiece of his regime's greatest propaganda event. Napoleon believed it was healthy and proper for the state to have a martial character. He liked his civil servants to behave almost like soldiers, with uniforms, ranks, titles, and even decorations for meritorious service. He believed that even in peacetime, a country should revere its army. But whatever Napoleon's personal views, you can't help but look at this parade of fresh troops as an ominous sign for the future of peace in Europe. Ironically, it seems one of Napoleon's biggest worries about this Easter celebration was the army's officer corps. He knew that in many ways, this was still an ideological army. For years, the military had been held up as the guardians and crusaders of the revolution. Successive revolutionary governments had purged the officer corps and promoted men who were deemed politically reliable. As we've seen in past episodes, these policies caused more than their share of problems. But they had the desired effect. By the dawn of the 19th century, republicanism really had become an authentic part of the French army's self-conception. Many senior officers were committed ideologues who had joined the ranks to fight for the cause. All of them had risked death, seen and done the impossible sometimes even done terrible things, in service of the Republic. They had to believe all that sacrifice had been for something, some great cause. When Napoleon seized power, you might think the army would be happy to finally see one of their own ruling the country. And indeed, some officers did celebrate, particularly those from the Army of Italy who were close to Napoleon. But this reaction was far from universal. Several French armies were slow to recognize the new Napoleonic regime. Clearly, they had been waiting for the dust to settle so they could get in good with the winning side, not seeking to play a role in events and ensure Bonaparte's success. Even after seeing Napoleon emerge as the clear victor, his support among the army remained weak. Shortly after the Brumaire coup, he received warnings from his generals and from his own secret police of widespread discontent among the officer corps. Fortunately for Bonaparte, there was no real focal point around which all this dissent could coalesce. But it was there, and it was something he had to worry about, particularly in the context of the Concordat, 
which many Republicans viewed as a betrayal of the revolution. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. In preparation for the Easter celebration, Napoleon took care to assign his most outspoken left-wing generals to duties outside Paris, where they would not be in a position to disrupt the ceremonies, or rally troops to their sides if the worst happened. Even some of those closest to Napoleon were sent away from the city. General Pierre Augereau, who had been one of Bonaparte's most reliable subordinates during the First Italian Campaign, and had even carried out the coup of Fructidor on Napoleon's orders. But he was also notoriously crude and strident, and loved nothing more than expounding on his hatred of the church and the aristocracy, with the trademark wit and colorful language he had learned growing up in the Paris slums. Despite all of Augereau's service to Napoleon, he determined Augereau was a likely candidate to disrupt the proceedings. And so, the fiery sans-culotte general was sent away from the capital. Even General Jean Lannes, one of Napoleon's closest personal friends and confidants, was sent off to serve as ambassador to Portugal, despite an almost total lack of diplomatic experience. Napoleon knew Lannes and his hardcore Republican sympathies all too well. Lannes turned out to be an awful diplomat, but the job did take him away from Paris at the crucial moment, just as intended. The First Consul could not risk anything going wrong, even if it meant sending away one of his oldest and dearest comrades. After reviewing the troops, Napoleon got dressed for mass. He picked out one of his best jackets, a bright red silk tailcoat with ornate gold embroidery, a gift from the city of Lyon in celebration of his victory at Marengo in 1800, with white breeches and a lace cravat. It was a very formal, very conservative outfit, the kind of thing you might expect a monarch to wear to an important state religious ceremony. For the first time in over ten years, the bells of Notre Dame rang out over the bustle of Paris, and the notables of Napoleonic France began filing into the old cathedral. The event got off to a bit of a rocky start. There seems to have been some confusion about the seating, and the dignitaries had to shuffle around a bit until everyone got a seat. The generals entered together in one large group, led by General André Massena, who had been Napoleon's right-hand man during the First Italian Campaign, before going on to command armies of his own with considerable skill, most notably during the Siege of Genoa, which had nearly killed him. Massena's group talked and laughed loudly, clearly making a point to demonstrate their disdain for the church and this ceremony. 
They were only there because Bonaparte had ordered it, and they wanted everyone to know that they were complying under protest. Masséna walked up to a pew full of priests and bishops and told them to scram to make room for the generals. An usher attempted to intervene, and Masséna turned to him and shouted, quote, Go fuck yourself, end quote. A glare from Bonaparte finally brought this little show to a close, but the point had been made. Some of this may have been personal. As you might recall, Bonaparte and Masséna had a complicated relationship from the very beginning. When Napoleon had taken command of the Army of Italy in 1796, he was widely perceived as stepping over Masséna, who everyone, including Masséna himself, had expected to receive the appointment. Both men were far too professional to allow this awkward situation to impact their mission, and any ill feelings were soon buried under the army's stunning victories in the first weeks of the campaign. But this slight must have cast a shadow over the two men's interactions. Masséna's bitterness seems to have re-emerged after the siege of Genoa. To buy time for Napoleon's second invasion of northern Italy, Masséna had sacrificed thousands of his own men to starvation and disease. He had even sacrificed his own health. Masséna had rode into Genoa a healthy, vigorous 42-year-old man with salt-and-pepper hair. Two months later, he had limped out a frail, thin, white-haired shadow of his former self, having held out exactly as long as Napoleon had ordered. And how had Bonaparte repaid this heroism? By criticizing Masséna and his troops for not exceeding his orders and waiting even longer to surrender. After Genoa, Masséna bought a country estate outside Paris, not far from Napoleon's country retreat at Malmaison. He never visited the Bonapartes, and joked with his guests that he bought a house on a hill overlooking Napoleon's so he could piss down on the first consul whenever the mood struck. He had taken to referring to Bonaparte only as that bugger. For his part, Napoleon had taken to calling Masséna the spoiled child of victory, a play on his nickname, the dear son of victory. Masséna's stature as one of France's greatest generals, and his unique combination of personal closeness and resentment towards Napoleon, seem to have made him the de facto leader of the generals who were opposed to the Concordat. Fortunately for Napoleon, Masséna seems to have had no agenda beyond causing a scene and embarrassing the government. France's second most famous general, Jean-Victor Moreau, was notably absent. Bonaparte had felt it improper to order him to come, and so he had stayed away. Instead, during the Mass, Moreau took a leisurely stroll through the Tuileries Gardens, puffing on a cigar, not only refusing to attend, but taking care to make his absence as conspicuous as possible, another form of protest. Once Masséna and his rowdy entourage finally calmed down, the rest of the mass went off without a hitch. Etienne Méhul, probably France's greatest living composer, directed the choir. The sermon was delivered by Jean de Dieu Raymond de Cusset de Boisgalin, the Archbishop of Tours. 
As you might have guessed from that bombastic name, the Archbishop was an aristocrat from a very old and very distinguished family, only recently returned from exile. Cousset de Boisguelin had been a rising star in the French church before the Revolution. He had also given the sermon at the coronation of King Louis XVI. The message could not have been clearer. This Mass was in part a welcome-home party for conservative Catholics. Perhaps it's no surprise that the staunchly Republican generals were having a hard time gritting their teeth and playing along. Perhaps Napoleon should have sent even more of them away from Paris. After Mass, Napoleon invited his guests to a reception at the Tuileries Palace. Bonaparte approached General Antoine Delmas to ask him what he thought of the ceremony. Delmas called it a capucinade, a French word with no proper English translation, meaning a boring moralistic discourse, a useful term which we might consider adopting. Delmas continued, quote, It is a shame that the million or so men who got themselves killed destroying what you have reestablished were not there. End quote. It took a lot of guts to talk that way to Napoleon Bonaparte. Not even his closest friends could get away with something like that. Sure enough, Bonaparte made Delmas pay for his insolence. Despite a brilliant military record, it would be over a decade before Delmas ever held command again. Even in 1813, when the state of the war was very desperate for France, Napoleon still made Delmas beg to be allowed back into the field. Sadly, Delmas was only back in the saddle a few months. He was badly wounded at the Battle of Leipzig later that year, and died a few weeks later. Delmas hated Napoleon's religious policies, but he still wanted to serve him. This is not the first time we've seen Bonaparte inspire this dynamic in people, and it will certainly not be the last. Napoleon's regime is often referred to as a military dictatorship by the general public, and also sometimes by historians of this era. I hope this story of Easter Mass 1802 has helped illustrate that this is a complicated question. True, Napoleon had used military force to obtain power. Without the support, or to be more accurate, acquiescence of the army, his regime could not have come into being. That said, in this episode we can see that on some important issues, he was dragging the army along with him rather than ruling through it. Easter Mass 1802 was no ordinary religious service. It was a carefully calculated piece of political theater. This was a spectacle meant to communicate the regime's values and worldview to the public. So, how did the regime represent itself in this spectacle? Well, the figures closest to Napoleon during the ceremony were almost all civilians. His family, the second and third consuls, the cabinet, then the senate, then the legislature, and only then the military leadership. They were further from the circle of power than every other group within the ruling elite, except the new Catholic bishops, the former enemies of the regime. Most of the generals had to sit in the peanut gallery with the rabble, and, as we saw from Messina's behavior, they definitely perceived this as an insult. 
Napoleon's regime was backed by force. People from the regions experiencing a crackdown on royalist rebels could certainly attest to that. But he certainly didn't rely on force alone. Bonaparte was also a pioneer of mass politics, who had made himself genuinely popular, and was in the process of building a powerful ruling coalition, both among the broader public and among the ruling elite. Napoleon himself was quite adamant that he was a civilian political leader. Quote, I do not govern as a general, but because the nation believes that I have the civilian qualities required for governing. End quote. On another occasion, he said, quote, If I were dying in my bed of a fever and were to make my will, I would warn the nation against a military government. I would tell it to choose a civilian first magistrate. End quote. So Napoleon definitely did not see himself as a military strongman, but of course, self perception can be deceiving. Napoleon believed in adapting some military methods in his administration, and he believed it was the duty of a good government to instill martial vigor in its people. He certainly made good use of that martial vigor. At its peak, the Napoleonic military would swell to well over a million men, out of a population of just 44 million. Is a militarized society ruled by an authoritarian leader, by definition a military dictatorship? Or does it matter that Napoleon governed through civilian institutions? I'll leave it to you to be the judge. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The military's loyalty to Napoleon was being called into question. But fortunately for Napoleon, the man in charge of the military was probably more loyal to Bonaparte than any other soldier in the country, the new Minister of War, General Louis-Alexandre Berthier, Napoleon's longtime chief of staff, who worked so closely with the First Consul that people called him Bonaparte's brain. Part of the reason Napoleon chose Berthier to lead the ministry was the same reason any dictator puts a loyal man in charge of the military, to conduct a purge. Now, that word probably conjures up some pretty dark imagery. Gulags, dungeons, bullets to the back of the head. But this was nothing of the sort. Officers deemed unreliable were simply removed from their posts and put on half pay. Perhaps a bit embarrassing, and certainly not very nice, but not cruel or homicidal. 
Within the first few years of Napoleon's regime, several thousand officers were removed from the active duty roles, just like the outspoken General Delmas. But Berthier wasn't installed at the war ministry simply to be a hatchet man. Napoleon was also hoping to tap into his considerable organizational talents. Remember, Berthier was groomed to be a staff officer from the very beginning of his military career. A quick refresher, staff officers serve on a military's general staff, which is something like the brains and nervous system of a country's military. The general staff handles tasks like personnel management, administration, logistics, communications, and, perhaps most importantly, planning. Obviously, every army that has ever existed has undertaken these functions in one way or another, but for most of human history, they were afterthoughts, addressed only on an informal, ad hoc basis, secondary to what was considered the real business of war, fighting and winning battles in the field. Over the course of the 18th century, European militaries started to grasp the importance of these mundane tasks. Having the best troops, tactics, and leadership is important, but regardless of their respective battlefield qualities, a well-fed army typically beats a starving army. An army that knows how to get where it's going typically beats an army that's blundering around in the dark. An army that knows how to marshal its resources typically beats an army that squanders its resources. And an army that has a plan for every contingency typically beats an army that's constantly forced to improvise. This was the future of warfare. By the beginning of the 20th century, maps, ledger books, supply chains, and railway timetables were almost as important to the art of war as bullets and bombs. Berthier was the first trained staff officer to ever reach such a high position in the French military. Berthier was the first ever trained staff officer to reach such a high position in the French military. He may have been the first to lead any military in the entire world. Within only a few generations, it would be almost unthinkable for anyone without staff training to hold such a high position. The outgoing war minister, Lazare Carnot, was certainly no stick in the mud. In fact, he had been a pioneer of this modern, organized style of warfare, which is a big reason he had been so successful and earned the nickname the Organizer of Victory. But Carnot was a student of general staff theory, not a true practitioner of it. He was actually a military engineer by trade, trained to design fortifications and build bridges not push paper and manage supply chains. Fortunately for the army, Carnot was a genius, and a very quick study. Berthier maybe fell slightly short of Carnot's massive intellect, but he was no slouch, and he knew the business of running a French army better than almost anyone alive. Serving as chief of staff to armies in the field, he had a unique insight into their shortcomings and their capabilities and he would use this knowledge to improve coordination between the armies in the field and the war ministry back in the capital. Today, we think of armies as little more than the tools of civilian governments. Within 50 years of Napoleon's death, kings, presidents, and prime ministers began actually trying to direct field operations themselves via telegraph. 
Today, political leaders can even watch important military operations unfold on video in real time. This was not the case at the dawn of the 19th century, to put it mildly. Armies in the field operated with near-total autonomy, linked to the leadership back in the capital only by a tenuous chain of couriers, usually on horseback. Correspondence between field commanders and army leadership lagged weeks behind the actual events on the front. There was not even the suggestion that war ministers or kings or emperors might actually direct operations in real time from their offices. It would be more accurate to say they sent troops, money, and material to the front with helpful suggestions and hoped for the best. We've seen this dynamic over and over again in Napoleon's early campaigns. Think back to his time in Italy or Egypt. Was he generally following directives from Paris or acting under his own initiative? Granted, Napoleon was far more independent-minded and more willing to defy the government than any other French general, but he was only able to do this because control from the capital was so loose and shaky. This wasn't always a bad thing, especially from the perspective of generals who made a habit of defying the government, like Napoleon. But it's not a solid model for warfare, particularly complex warfare on multiple fronts. As we've seen in past wars, the Republicans sometimes had trouble coordinating the actions of all their various armies. For example, Napoleon's push over the Alps into Austria in 1797 was ultimately victorious, but it would have gone much more smoothly if there had been a corresponding French offensive in Germany to divide Austrian attention. Paris had ordered such an attack, but it never materialized, because there was no mechanism to ensure the two armies attacked on or around the same date once both were ready. And so, the Army of Italy went in alone, marching into Austria with their left flank exposed. If the Habsburg armies had taken advantage of the situation and struck Napoleon's open flank, Bonaparte himself said he would have been forced to abandon the drive on Vienna and return to Italy. As the army grew, these types of problems would only become more pronounced. And there were much more basic administrative problems in the army as well. The French military had come a very long way from the desperate days of 1793, when the Republican armies were not much better than armed mobs, thrown into battle with minimal training and equipment. But there were still a lot of glaring deficiencies. For one thing, no one in France, not even Napoleon himself, knew with any certainty how many men served in the armed forces. The war ministry had a rough idea of how many men were in each unit, because they had to send them material and money to keep them paid, fed, and equipped. But as we've seen in past episodes, armies in the field never got enough support from Paris. Commanders had to rely on their own initiative to get their troops what they needed. Republican armies became experts at living off the land and seizing supplies from the enemy. But, as we've seen, they often fell short of requirements. Part of the problem was that the cash-strapped government in Paris simply couldn't afford the resources to supply its armies. But part of the problem was administrative. There was no set, uniform system of supplies and logistics. These were handled on an ad hoc, case-by-case -case basis, 
through civilian contractors who were inefficient, hard to manage, and gouged the army at every opportunity. Even at the most pivotal moments of Napoleon's early campaigns, you could often find him haggling with some wool merchant, or in the middle of a tirade against a corrupt meat supplier. Even when other matters desperately needed his attention, the army couldn't fight without clothes on their back and food in their bellies. Bonaparte's letters from his early campaigns are filled with complaints about contractors and supply problems. In a perverse way, the chronic shortages might have actually helped the Army of Italy. Napoleon's successful, highly aggressive strategy was partially created out of the necessity to seize supplies from the enemy and conquer new territories, where food could be requisitioned and the local elite could be shaken down for cash. But starving your armies to incentivize them to attack is no way to operate in the long term, even if it did work out in this specific case. Generally speaking, the supply and logistics situation was an anchor around the neck of every French army. Starting in 1802, Napoleon began to change that. He and Berthier began to bring the inefficient, piecemeal system of civilian contractors under centralized military control. The first step of this process was actually nailing down how many men served in the French army. To do this, Berthier was forced to send his staff out to the various encampments and garrisons around France to literally count soldiers. This new centralized logistics system was a massive and incredibly tedious undertaking. It wouldn't be finished for nearly a decade but it would help improve the performance of France's armies dramatically. It made it easier for them to operate far from France's borders, and in poor terrain where it was hard to live off the land. As soon as he took office as Minister of War, Berthier threw himself into the task of taming the wilderness of disorganized paperwork, which had accumulated over the last ten years. Between the upheaval of the revolution and the life-or-death struggle against the coalition, meticulous record-keeping had become a distant priority to the ministry, to put it politely. The service records of individual soldiers had become a complete lost cause. Some men had served in the army for years without ever technically existing on paper back at the ministry. Meanwhile, there were records of soldiers who had never existed, but were created out of thin air by corrupt officers to scam the government. Hardly a single man in the French army had a corresponding service record back at the ministry which was both correct and complete. As a result, there were notorious examples of assignments, promotions, and even decorations going to the wrong man. Officers dismissed from the army for political unreliability, incompetence, or even treason were easily able to re-enlist. Again, this was not always a negative. Many Republican governments had been far too quick to dismiss talented officers. So the French army was fortunate that so many of them were able to slip back into the ranks. But this was hardly a sensible or efficient way to go about things. 
Berthier did a lot of the boring, slow work of cleaning up bureaucratic messes and untangling knots of red tape to make the ministry worthy of the powerful military it served. Perhaps his most important contribution during this period was a small, seemingly insignificant, new regulation. From now on, every French army in the field would be required to submit a report every two weeks, recording the composition and disposition of its forces, and the positions and suspected strength of any nearby enemy forces, complete with tables and maps. In short, Generals were to submit a complete summary of the current state of their campaign every fortnight. People probably rolled their eyes at the notorious bean-counter Berthier demanding this level of meticulousness from officers in the face of the enemy, but there was a method to this madness. This is the basic, baseline level of information required to coordinate a national, centralized war effort. For instance, if your country was ruled by a single individual dictator who wanted to direct military operations on multiple fronts, like, for example, some kind of emperor taking on all of Europe. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. For now, suffice it to say, peace was proving to be a significant formative period for the French military. As we've seen, the new type of citizen army forged by the revolution could be incredibly powerful with the right kind of leadership. With peace, and with the guidance of Napoleon and Berthier, using the foundations laid by Lazare Carnot, the Republic's military administration was finally catching up to its army's capabilities. The French military used cutting-edge modern methods, the latest modern tactics, and was led by a dynamic new generation of leaders who embraced modern warfare. Now, Napoleon and Berthier hoped to give it a truly modern military administration to match. And not a moment too soon, because as we'll see next episode, war was already looming on the horizon once again. Until then, thanks for listening. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts.